Hey everyone, you're about to hear one of our excellent episodes handpicked from the archives. Why? Because we believe in vacation time, and so do our members. After more than 10 years of perpetually verging on burnout, members voted to give me a French amount of time off each year, so I thank them for that and use this as an opportunity to urge you to agitate for better working conditions for yourself and across the board. Now, enjoy the fruits of our labor. Don't forget that we have collected into one place all of our favorite ways that you can support the show while doing any holiday shopping this year, including real books, audiobooks, various apparel and merch, not just our stuff, but other great stuff, and of course, gift memberships. Find all that at bestofleft.com slash holiday. We appreciate your support. Again, that's bestofleft.com slash holiday. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the fringe philosophy of accelerationism that is having a bigger impact on society than you will have likely realized, as it's been behind some of the worst terror attacks in recent years, and is likely behind attacks on infrastructure, which is targeting society as a whole. Clips today are from Fillion, Tech Against Terrorism, White Hot Hate, Angry Planet, The Rachel Maddow Show, The World Affairs Council of Monterey Bay, and RSA Podcasts, with an additional members-only clip from Wisecrack. And just a heads up that this episode does contain some pretty extreme, not to mention profane, material. Would you believe me if I told you that there is a dystopian political ideology that treats the apocalypse as a gift? This philosophy exists both on the right and left and is based off a sci-fi novel. And currently, we are seeing the real-world effects of technocrats and extremists who adopt these principles. Accelerationism is stepping on the gas of a technocratic, capitalistic society. Technocratic meaning a society driven by technology, dominated by powerful oligarchs, it's no secret or modern society adopts some of these principles. An example of this is global warming is happening, let's make it happen faster. Accelerationists believe in taking on any consequence as a result of pushing through to the next phase. This is through production, industrialization, and constantly advancing no matter the cost. In other words, fully unleashing capitalism to create a utopia. The earliest ideas of accelerationism in philosophy and politics were due to French Marxist in the 1970s. In 1972, philosopher Deleuze and psychoanalyst Guattari published Anti-Oedipus and explored the idea of capitalism and how it has the ability to liberate and oppress but wanted to go still further. In 1974, Lyotard in his book The Libidinal Economy states that capitalism was also enjoyed by those whose lives have been accelerated. To him, the system of capital is, when all said and done, natural. From 1987 to 1998, a Warwick professor named Nick Land created accelerationism based on a sci-fi novel called Lord of Light. Nick Land was and still is an absolute mad lad. Nick Land was known for giving fantastical lectures, spewing out buzzwords, climbing over chairs, laying on the ground making guttural noises from his throat, anything to get a strange reaction from his students. In 1995, he founded what is called the CCRU, or the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit. This
This can be described as an experimental cultural theorist collective, or a really weird academic think tank. Nick Land created the CCRU with Sadie Plant, a fellow professor at Warwick. Mark Fisher, student of Sadie Plant, was also a founding member. The CCRU covered topics ranging from futurism, techno-science, philosophy, mysticism, numerology, complexity theory, and science fiction. This would begin his descent into madness. He became a satanic cultist, fled to China, and coined the term the Dark Enlightenment. Mark Fisher would ultimately distance himself from Nick Land and would become a left accelerationist, focusing less on capitalism because he thought of it as more of a hamster wheel of production than any actual progress. To him, capitalism was a disappointment to accelerationism. Central to accelerationism is the idea of hyperstition. According to an interview between Delphi Karstens and Nick Land, hyperstition is best described as a positive feedback circuit, including culture as a component. It can be defined as the experimental techno-science of self-fulfilling prophecies. Superstitions are merely false beliefs, but hyperstitions, by their very existence as ideas, function casually to bring about their own reality. Capitalist economics is extremely sensitive to hyperstition, where confidence acts as an effective tonic and inversely. The fictional idea of cyberspace contributed to the influx of investment that rapidly converted it into a techno-social reality. No, I hear ya. I'm just as confused as you. There are four elements of hyperstition. Number one, it is an element of effective culture that makes itself real. Think of the stock market. It can either go up or down depending on speculation. Number two, it is fictional. The future is made up, but it's actually real because of society's visions of the future. Think of Brave New World, 1984, Terminator, iRobot, or even Ex Machina. Number three, hyperstitions are coincidence intensifiers. This means that accelerated fictions come true fast. An example of this would be capitalism. Technology increases and continues to feed back into itself. New technology means faster progress, which means more new technology. Number four, hyperstition is a call to the old ones. On the other side of tech exists nature itself. All of this sounds like a sci-fi novelist's wet dream. Technology is the answer that humans have to unlock to find the truth. The idea here is that there's no need for a left or right when the true answer is technology. In fact, there will be no need to fight over policies when everyone's problems are simply solved because of technological advancements. Modern examples of people who would fall under the accelerationist umbrella would include Steve Bannon, chief strategist of the White House under Trump, Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal and Palantir, Mark Andreessen, the man who literally invented the internet in the form of Netscape, and Curtis Yarvin, aka Mencius Moldbug. Have you ever heard of taking the red pill? It's literally tossed around every single day on every corner of the internet. Curtis Yarvin, under the Harry Potter-esque pseudonym Mencius Moldbug, an alt-right technocrat blogger, coined the term in 2009, taking the metaphor from the Matrix. Years later, accelerationism would then be fully actualized in the form of the Dark Enlightenment. Nick Land's ideas were expanded upon by Curtis Yarvin under the pseudonym Mencius Moldbug. The Dark Enlightenment is synonymous with neo-reactionaries or NRX for short. According to Kali Yuga accelerationists, we are living in the Kali Yuga or dark times. And as you know by now, surfing the Kali Yuga means embracing the darkness, letting things happen, and even stepping on the gas. Not surfing the Kali Yuga refers to traditionalism, but this is an escapist answer to modern problems. On the spectrum, you have traditionalism and modernity. Traditionalism is an escape from modern times, 
Traditionalists want to live like civilizations in the past, and they define tradition as truth. It's simply hating the modern world and yearning for a return of the good days. I put good days in quotations because I think we've all read a history book or two. Modernity is the reality that we live in now and capitalism is the vehicle that drives modernity. Accelerationism is one of the alt-right answers to getting out of the Kali Yuga, or the Dark Age. To these people, modern times are so bad and estranged from tradition that we are living in an apocalypse or the Kali Yuga. To summarize the different types of accelerationism, inventing the future from Shrinchek and Williams and the CCRU are examples of left accelerationism or contemporary accelerationism. Left accelerationists believe in full automation and universal basic income. They believe the only way for a society to collapse is to be pushed to the breaking point, or accelerated, so that a true socialist society can exist in the aftermath. However, after Nick Land left the CCRU, he accelerated a little too hard and created a new sect of accelerationism called Landian Accelerationism, which is synonymous with right accelerationism. Landian accelerationists, or r slash ack, believe that machines are going to take over the world and kill everyone, because technology has gotten to a point where it is irreversible. But this is a good thing, because we will surrender ourselves to the one true god technology. And lastly, far-right accelerationists have been lumped into the pot with white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups. They advocate for a civil war or assassinations to speed up the process of anarchy. <sighs> Man, I really just need to go outside and touch some grass. Kreiner is a research analyst at the forefront of accelerationism studies. He's a senior research scholar at CTEC and managing director at ARC. He explains how the concept of accelerationism overlaps with fascism and how it came about after the Second World War. So after World War II, there was a predominance of liberal democracy taking over global uh, geopolitics. We had the UN emerging, we had the Cold War sort of putting the United States against com communist Russia. And, and really what we see is as the war winds down and, and much of the fascist movement, which obviously is at the time predominantly tied to Nazism, Italian fascism, and Spanish Francoism, the dictator in Spain at the time, we really see this change in understanding what is our far right, which is essentially where fascism comes from, conservative, lower C, not American conservatives, but this broader reactionary notion of what are we now in relation to America, to Russia? How do we deal with that? And, you know, as those movements sort of deal with this, this is all very, by the way, simplified. I, I, I apologize to any fascist historians out there that are listening to this thinking, good God, man, you're really destroying that. Uh, but the the reality is they start to grapple internally with themselves, with their own national identities, with their sort of pan-Aryan, if they believed in that, or broader European identity structures. And they kept asking themselves, are we bigger than just our national identity? Are we bigger than just our political party? Is there something more there? And, you know, what they all collectively at varying levels agreed to is, well, the problem is really liberalism. The problem is this notion of equality and everybody has a, a seat at the table and that voting ultimately degrades human, in, in their minds, human's capabilities and the, the progression of, of society. To them and to fascists, at the, as we move through this big chunk of time, 
they start to contend with the systems. But ultimately, what we see is that this doctrine and tactics emerge that effectively means, you know, we have to get rid of liberalism in any way, shape or form, and we have to do it as quick as possible. But the the proto accelerationist uh, mindset is really encapsulated in the in the in the inter like, after war period of Italy and how they really the fascist movements there really solidified their identities. After that, we start to see the influence of Evola really spike. Now, Evola was very prominently influenced, in, especially in the years of lead within the fasc- neo-fascist groups that were active in terrorism, things of that nature. It's well documented at this point. And, and he was brought before a judge at one point, though not found guilty. Um, it has something to do with him being paralyzed. They didn't really think that he could be involved in terrorism if he was paralyzed. We heard Matt talking about Julius Evola there. He was a far-right Italian philosopher whose anti-Semite and Nazi thinking influenced far-right Italian movements during the 1950s and 60s. When we really look at that shift out of the 70s into the 80s and 90s, what we really see is this metaphysical assumption of identity for fascists. Uh, not all fascists, obviously, but what we get is this notion that there is something more to being a uh, fascist. There's something more to being an Aryan. And they start to really elevate their notions into this metaphysical space. Uh, they really believe that society is degraded to a point that it can't be saved. All social structures are corrupt. There's a lot of anti-Semitism and racism tied up in this, and I won't bog us down in that discussion at all. Just know it's really racist, really terribly anti-Semitic. And the justification that they come up with, the tactic they come up with, and this is, again, very simplified, is to race through this period to get back to the golden age, which comes afterwards. So there's where we get the notion of accelerationism. It's this belief that one no longer can engage with the political systems that are available. In fact, to do so is is counterproductive entirely. You know, at one point they believe maybe we can turn back the time cycle, but no, it, it, they now believe we cannot do that. The only way is to go through. Democrats' plans to enact a sweeping series of gun measures have already fired a rebellion in dozens of counties. Now, armed gun rights supporters from across the country are planning to sweep into Richmond on Martin Luther King Day. The rally even getting the president's attention. He tweeted, quote, Your Second Amendment is under very serious attack at the great Commonwealth of Virginia. That's what happens when you vote for Democrats. They will take your guns away. Most years, the annual Lobby Day in Virginia, organized by pro-gun advocates, attracts a few hundred participants. Either show up or shut up. You can take time off, you can find a way, because if you don't, then you're giving up on the Second Amendment. So, I mean, basically, In January 2020, though, anticipation was building about a much larger rally. Virginia was on the cusp of passing gun control laws that, among other measures, would include mandatory background checks to purchase firearms. Buzz was building not just among gun lobbyists who planned to turn out in force, but also militia groups, conspiracy theorists, and far-right extremists. It felt like a toxic brew. But we're going to be there. We're going to be covering it all. This is the real fight for America. This is asymmetrical warfare by the deep state against our country. We need all eyes and ears on the ground in Virginia and in As the gun control debate is heating up across Virginia, so were the number of guns being walked out of stores. Police were on high alert. And those who were monitoring the base and like-minded accelerationist groups were especially concerned. By this time, the FBI had installed a hidden CCTV camera and microphone 
in Matthews and Lemley's apartment. They'd recorded the men discussing the assault rifle they were making, as well as hours and hours of them spewing racist rhetoric against African Americans and Jews. Something that a lot of people don't know, a lot of race riots back in the day were started by whites. We would start the riots, and you best believe we finished them. We need to go back to the days of decimating uh, blacks and getting rid of them wherever they stand. And Matthews had this to say about the upcoming pro-gun rally in Richmond, Virginia. Get your asses there and the minute things escalate, get to every single thing you can take out. Power lines, everything. We need to fucking escalate this and spread that idea and just say fucking bring the system down. When Virginia happens, we fucking kill the system. We, we stop the whole fucking thing. The plan was to create bloody mayhem. Fan the flames. Pour gasoline on the fire and just let it fucking burn. If you're wondering why neo-Nazis would target a crowd of conservative and predominantly white gun enthusiasts, well, I had the same question. And I asked Ryan Thorpe. I think you have to go back and contextualize it within the framework of accelerationism. It does seem somewhat counterintuitive that these people who would be very pro-gun rights would attack a pro-gun rights rally. But it just makes me think of Matthews in the Park, where he was saying, I want the liberals to get five terms in office. You know, I want Black Lives Matter active in every white neighborhood. They don't care who who they they maim or hurt or kill. It's difficult to get yourself into this mindset, but you have to understand like just the level of disregard for human life. Matthews and Lemley, who are members of the base, were now targeted for execution by the members of the Georgia cell. So not only was this organization fine with like attacking right-wing pro-Second Amendment protesters, they were fine attacking each other, you know? It's like when you get that deep into like terroristic you know, revolutionary ideology or activity. It's a circular firing squad, right? They want to cause chaos. They want to cause bloodshed. What they want to do is increase polarization, heighten the contradictions. Let's turn up the heat to get everyone more likely to take rash action. So actually, I think it makes sense. I I don't think it was an odd target for them to identify for an attack. I think it fits entirely in with their ideology. We're having a winter membership drive to close out the year, so if you've been waiting for a special occasion to sign up or buy a membership as a gift, now's the time. We're a small team working on a small budget, and sometimes we get tossed around with the bigger ebbs and flows of the podcasting business, and we can't always depend on steady ad revenue, which is why members have always been the most important part of keeping the show running. So just because we've been around for a long time, don't think that we don't need your support, because we absolutely do. For the holiday season, membership is on discount for 20% off. That goes for gift membership as well, so grab that while you can and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode, bonus episodes where the team get together and make each other laugh while discussing important issues, and an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestoftheleft.com slash support for details. That link is in the show notes, and thanks for your support. 
the Patriot Front bust that happened over the weekend. Uh, can you tell the audience, in case they don't know, what happened? You're, you're both nodding um, and, and what you made of it. Yeah, so over the weekend, a neo-Nazi group known as the Patriot Front was arrested as they arrived in a, in a U-Haul to a pride rally taking place in, in Idaho. And I think it's really important just, you know, to make very clear that, you know, despite the fact that this group is typically decked out in American flags, American eagles, you know, the same kind of uniforms that, that we see them in pretty frequently, that this is a neo-Nazi group. And this is a group that time and time again has used rhetoric, has used hateful language that not only incites violence against the out group, but this is specifically a group that time and time again has you know, evidence the ability and the means to commit violence in, in the name of that ideology. And, you know, you, you started out by saying it's a bit tangential and, but there's actually a through line between the proud boys and the, and the Patriot front uh, elements that we see today, you know, very active in, in the sort of political violence or political intimidation space. And that's accelerationism. Both entities have a through line of that in their core constituency and their membership and their factions. Uh, and with Patriot Front, what we've really seen over the last year or so here is that the, the influence of the rise above movement or its successor entities will to rise and the so-called active clubs. Um, they've been training members of Patriot Front and helping radicalize them further for many months. Uh, and when I say training, I mean, literally physically training them, getting in them out into open parks where they do physical combat training uh, and, and really just push them to their physical limits. And that's a part of the sort of militant accelerationist playbook. Uh, and what we've seen with this targeting of the pride rally is actually probably more the influence of the Ram and active club ideology, uh, which is a bit of a departure for Patriot Front, which likes to do these really ridiculous uh, flash shows up shows up at the out of the back of a u-haul they did this in philly they did it in washington dc they put a bunch of those american flags out and they walk around like they're the coolest kids on campus but in reality they're they're often fairly cowardly and they run away pretty quickly from any kind of confrontation the influence of of the will to rise and the uh, rise above movement sort of larger uh network is actually in con- discouraging for us because it tells us that the the Patriot Front members that are being influenced by them or interacting with them uh, are probably going to stop being so cowardly and start to be a little bit more proactive or willing to fight. And that's going to really change the tenor of Patriot Front overall. You see the images of these, was it like 30 of them in the back of a U-Haul getting pulled out? Some of them were obviously mugging for the camera as they were being arrested. Uh, They look ridiculous. The Proud Boys on the surface, when you start learning about, especially the early days, like the tattoos and the being punched as an initiation ritual while you're reciting cereal brands, it's so silly. A lot of this stuff is so silly and bizarre and ridiculous, and and it's easy to look at that um, and dismiss it, I think, right? It is. And I think that there, there's sort of a double-edged sword when we talk about this, like as researchers or as observers of this, we look at that and think, what the hell are they up to? Like, why are they punching each other over serial names? But it serves a couple of purposes. One, it sort of, uh, I think, takes the edge off some of the hardened elements of the core, you know, what are we as Proud Boys, right? Like, ultimately, the goal is for them to get out and go beat the hell out of somebody else. Like, that's really what their their purpose is. The same thing with RAM. Ultimately, they're pushing people towards this positioning of getting out and beating somebody up, if not worse. Um, Patriot Front talks a big game. They they get 
caught up in these little U-Haul moments. They look really stupid, objectively stupid on social media. But that's part of the goal is to get more attention, get people focusing on them so that when they do something again, it seems like, oh, wow, they're really all over the country. But the arrest records show us that it's actually a few select number of individuals that are traveling all around, right, doing this stuff. They had to bring people from out of state to accomplish that goal. On the other side, we look at this as as researchers and analysts and we say, you know, there's a darker element to making it fun to be in the initiatic spaces of these organizations. You start to really make it more comfortable for someone to make a joke out of beating somebody up. You get more comfortable with it physically, emotionally, and mentally. That's really critical when we talk about radicalization practices of these organizations, particularly in the far right, who are heavily dehumanizing their outgroup or their people they don't like. And when it comes to things like the pride attack uh, or attempts at uh, that kind of thing, or whether it's political enemies, you have to do a little bit more to make that person truly a dehumanized thing uh, in the minds of those that are radicalizing, because ultimately they still look like an American, right? They're still just standing there in front of you. So you have to get them over that hump of, I'm not quite ready to throw a punch at that. And that initial bit, those serials and stuff, those have a really important role to play in getting someone more comfortable just throwing a fist at a random person. Uh, I just want to sort of get to grips with one thing, because we're talking about, you know, 15 guys in a van here. And, um, and I guess we're talking about a larger number on January 6th, but I, I really always wanted to understand the kind of threat these guys really genuinely pose. You know, um, they don't seem to be planting bombs, not that I'm trying to give them ideas, but you know, the kinds of terrorism that, uh, other groups have carried out, they seem very public. Yeah, I mean, this is a really good point. I think it kind of gets to the sort of third angle of when we talk about the the aesthetics or the practices of that seem a little idiosyncratic or jokey, uh, sort of shitposting in real life, if you will, uh, of these organizations. And and that's the fact that organizationally speaking, whether they're networks or hierarchical structures, they have a tendency to fall apart at times. Uh, whether it's due to egotistical infighting, whether it's due to informants or FBI infiltration or local law enforcement infiltration, uh, or even anti-fascist infiltration who do incredible work getting in there and just kind of messing with their heads. I mean, Patriot Front's probably one of the best example of anti-fascist activists sitting in their chats, waiting for a moment and then just saying, hey, by the way, I'm Antifa. And they all just scatter like cockroaches in the light. It's it's one of those moments where you you sort of, you want to have that schadenfreude. But at the same time, we have to recognize that that's one or maybe two or three individuals sitting in a group of a couple hundred, right, on the national calls for the Patriot Front. So I think I think what we when we look at this, we see, okay, one, organizationally, they're not always the most effective, which means their output in terms of like whether we're going to get to the point of them throwing bombs or placing bombs in, in situations, probably not likely, right? I think that's that's realistic to say that Patriot Front's probably not going to put bombs down anytime soon. Um, but that leaves a whole host of other activities that are just as dangerous and violent, uh, like two, intimidating people in a political manner, that's still a form of terrorism. That's still a form of political violence. Discouraging people from showing up at polling stations or their school board, like the Proud Boys do, uh, or making them feel uncomfortable going to a thing that's protected by the First Amendment, such as a pride event, those things are still forms of political violence that create danger in a community. And other people will gravitate toward that, regardless if they themselves are part of that organization. So we saw individuals with AR-15s on the periphery of that pride event. These are kind of like 
lights that bring bugs in the dark. You know that moths will come to these spaces. The, the flame is lit. Someone might still do something, even if they're not part of the Patriot Front. So that sort of culmination of activity raises the overall tenor and risk for those spaces. And then three, the fact that they're willing to engage in physical violence above and beyond just the intimidation, that's a very real threat. And that's something that I think people often overlook when we talk about domestic violent extremists or domestic terrorists. Uh, I'm using sort of air quotes there for those that are just listening. And I think what we have to understand is that is in and of itself a considerable risk to the American public. People weren't throwing bombs. People weren't shooting guns on January 6th. They were throwing punches, taking physical blunt objects and beating the crap out of cops and trying to stop the election. These things are not disconnected. They're tied together. And, and one activity in Idaho ultimately can lead to things like that in January 6th in Washington, D.C. It was just southeast of San Jose, California, started at 12.58 a.m. in an unincorporated, sort of semi-rural area, not far from Silicon Valley, near the 101 freeway. 12.58 a.m. Somehow, someone, almost certainly more than one person, opened up the heavy metal cover of an underground vault on the side of the road. It wasn't a normal manhole cover like you see in the street everywhere, the kind of thing you might be able to lift up yourself. It was much bigger than that, heavier than that, which is why investigators think it would have likely taken more than one person to open this thing up. But whoever it was, they opened it up. They got inside that underground vault. And when they were in there, they cut the fiber optic cables that ran through it. Then nine minutes later, they did it again. A different nearby underground vault containing fiber optic cables. They pulled open the doors, got in there and sliced off the fiber. And and the consequences of that were immediate. People all over the area instantly lost cell phone service and landline phone service and 911 call service went down. Police would ultimately have to tell people in the area that if they were having an emergency and they needed to call 911, they should try to do that from a cell phone. If that didn't work, they should try to do it from a landline. If that didn't work, police advised people in the area, you're going to have to drive to the nearest fire station and ask for help in person because we have no other way for you to reach us. 21 minutes after they cut the second set of fiber optic cables, whoever it was started shooting into that electrical power substation with AK-47 style rifles. Gators say the shooters fired more than 100 bullets into the electrical substation over a period of about 19 minutes. They were firing carefully enough and with enough well-informed deliberation that in that 19-minute period where they were shooting all those dozens of rounds, they were able to knock out 17 different electrical transformers in that substation, some of them by shooting them directly and some of them by causing them to melt down. Quote, the shooters appear to have aimed at the transformers oil-filled cooling systems. Riddled with bullet holes, the transformers leaked 52,000 gallons of oil, then overheated. The first bank of them started crashing at 1.45 a.m. So between hitting the, the, the oil that was used as a cooling fluid for the transformers and hitting the transformers themselves, with more than 100 rounds of AK-47 rifle fire, 17 transformers were knocked out in that electrical power substation. 
And with the cutting of the fiber optic cables nearby, cell phone, landline, and 911 service was knocked out. That Northern California attack in 2013, altogether, all those different components of it, it took less than an hour. And by the time the police turned up, the perpetrators were gone. It took 27 days for authorities to make the repairs and get that substation up and running and get that fiber connected again. So again, that took place April 2013 in Northern California. That attack remains unsolved. Nobody ever publicly claimed responsibility. Nobody, as far as we know, was ever arrested. No motive was ever ascribed to whoever carried out that attack. Now, fast forward to this year, February of this year, February 2022, three men, one from Ohio, one from Wisconsin, one from Indiana and Texas, pled guilty to a plot to do much the same thing, inspired by white supremacist ideology. Department of Justice press release. Three men plead guilty to conspiring to provide material support to a plot to attack power grids in the United States. Domestic terrorism plot was in furtherance of white supremacist ideology. And the plea agreement in that case, again, from earlier this year, spells it out. It says in the fall of 2019, two young men, one age 20, one age 24, met in an online forum. One suggested to the other that they hatch a plan to take out electrical power substations in various parts of the country to try to set off civil unrest and to hopefully try to set off a race war in the United States. This is from the plea agreement. Quote, the plan was to attack the substations with powerful rifles that would penetrate the electrical transformers. Members of the group estimated that would cost the government millions of dollars to recover. In addition, the defendants believed that time associated with replacing the substations would cause confusion and unrest for Americans in the region. There were also conversations about how the possibility of the power being out for many months could cause a race war. Additionally, without power across the country, they hoped it could cause the next Great Depression. People wouldn't show up to work, the economy would crash, and there would be a ripe opportunity for potential white leaders to rise up. That plea agreement, unsealed by the government earlier this year, explains how these young men decided they would need to cause a big explosion as a distraction. They wanted to set some set off some kind of big explosion that would tie up the police and distract police from what they were going to do to the power substations, which is something, again, that they hoped would cause millions of dollars of damage, something that would take months to be able to repair. To set off just the distraction explosion, they admitted to buying bomb components and starting to test explosives to suit that part of their plan. They also obtained multiple so-called ghost guns, guns with no serial numbers, so they couldn't be traced. They built what the government describes as multiple AR-47-style semi-automatic rifles. They built the rifles, they were building more, and they started training with them at firing ranges. When the FBI searched their homes, they found multiple firearms, including firearms with no serial number, multiple silencers, milling tools, weapons modification manuals, explosives production diagrams and manuals, chemicals and components that an FBI lab determined could be used to create an explosive device. Prosecutors said they found, quote, a large amount of Nazi-related material, such as videos, books, and images. Also, detailed U.S. power infrastructure information, a list of specific power substations, and, quote, an article regarding the sabotage of a power substation in California. So the California attack on that power substation was in 2013, still unsolved. 
This year, we get neo-Nazis trying to set off a race war, planning what appears to have been a copycat attack, copying what happened in California. Also, to the extent that they're also planning on using high-powered rifles to shoot up electrical substations and try to knock out the power. The guilty pleas to the plot that was uncovered by federal prosecutors, those guilty pleas were earlier this year in federal court in Ohio. And now this weekend, here we are again, Moore County, North Carolina. Shortly after 7 p.m., power outages began here in the Carthage area. Shortly thereafter, the outages would spread to the greater majority of central and southern Moore County. Upon the arrival of the power crews and our deputies, extensive damage uh, was uh, found at their substations. Evidence at the scene indicated that the uh, showed that the firearm had been used uh, to disable the equipment. Power out for what they call 45,000 customers. Customers in this case means 45,000 homes and businesses. Altogether, we're talking about over 100,000 people. Well, it was initially 45,000 customers, 45,000 homes and businesses. It's now down to 33,000 homes and businesses. But that's still tens of thousands of Americans tonight with zero power. Zero. And and this isn't like lines down in a storm that you go out and rewire the lines and put them back up. This is two electrical substations shot up with firearms, like in California in 2013, and like the neo-Nazis just pled guilty to planning in Ohio earlier this year. Accelerationism is a doctrine and a strategic framework. It is not an ideology. That means that it actually cuts across ideologies. You can have, uh, there have been accelerations connected to, there have been far-right accelerations connected to violent Maoists, connected to communists, connected to boogaloo people. Like there's there's this very much this, um, what we call coalitional nature of accelerationism that leads to these people and these movements making allies, uh, alliances of convenience, all in the furtherance of this war against the modern world. Um, so basically, each of these movements may not agree ideologically with one another, but they will make alliances with each other because they believe that they will ultimately come out on top after the apocalyptic break has happened. As I've already mentioned before, specific groups are not as important as overarching networks. Uh, groups collapse and reform constantly, and this is actually a strategy both to throw off media coverage, to throw off government reaction, and also to spread ideas further and further. One of the most interesting parts and u- unique parts of accelerationism is its aesthetic. Uh, accelerationist movements often have very, very striking aesthetics and use very unique imagery. This means that the aesthetics of accelerationism are one of the best ways we have of actually understanding and identifying accelerationists in the wild. As I mentioned before, you can't identify based on ideology because accelerationism cuts across ideology. So what you can do is use aesthetic and, and visual markers to, to, to identify. Um, one of the clearest red flags for accelerationist influence is the appearance of skull masks among activists. So 
I'm sure a lot of you have seen uh, these skull masks in the wild, but for those who haven't, this is what it looks like. This is an Anawafen division uh, membership photo. So this particular skull mask, and it should be noted, there are many different types of skull masks, but this particular one that is worn by these Anawafen members is the one that is most strongly associated with accelerationism. So accelerationism isn't just in theory. It has also been implemented in practice to pretty horrific and tragic ends. Um, so there are a, a pretty good, uh, there's been a, a pretty large set of confirmed accelerationist violence that's happened over the past couple of decades. Uh, I, in this, I'll only list a handful and I'll split it up by skull mask and boogaloo. So on the skull mask side, some of the mass shooters that have, um, perpetrated horrific attacks over the past 10 years have been directly linked to the, uh, neo-fascist, uh, neo-Nazi accelerationist network. These include Brenton Tarrant, the Christchurch shooter, Patrick Crucius, who was directly inspired by Tarrant, uh, Robert Bowers, who was the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter and Timothy Wilson, who was a, who was a member of the national socialist movement and also promoted the Boogaloo. Uh, he was the individual who was killed in FBI shootout in Missouri when he was on his way to attempt to bomb a hospital back in, uh, early 2020, soon after the pandemic had started on the Boogaloo side. In addition to Timothy Wilson, uh, Stephen Carrillo was a confirmed Boogaloo uh, adherent, and he murdered uh, to he allegedly murdered two um, uh, sheriffs, two police officers in California. And then the Michigan Wolverines in Michigan were a Boogaloo cell who are accused of uh, plotting to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. So. What makes accelerationism so difficult to address? Why am I talking about it here? Why, do, why am I so concerned about it? So first, it's anti-ideological. A lot of conventional counterterrorism and, and uh, counter-extremism relies on ideological analysis. We can't rely on ideological groupings for accelerationism because it is latent within so many different ideologies. It cuts across ideologies. Accelerationism is also syncretic. It encompasses a, a, and pulls in references and learnings from a whole bunch of different extremist philosophies, extremist movements, religions, literature, and many of which are extraordinarily niche and are hard to recognize unless you're very, very deeply immersed in accelerationist rhetoric. It's very decentralized, and as a result, leaders are hard to identify. Uh, many are often in flux, and so leadership of specific brands can come and go and, and can change very quickly. It's also, as I've mentioned before, significantly networked adherence from many different groups intermix in uh, encrypted chats and on um, Telegram channels, and they share tactics, propaganda, uh, and often will actually share membership with various different groups. And then finally, one of the core uh, tactics within accelerationists uh, movements is strategic infiltration. So uh, accelerationists will actually join non-accelerationist movements specifically to escalate them to revolutionary violence. Uh, this happens quite a bit. It happened actually in the Anamothan division itself. Uh, and it has happened elsewhere too. There are, there are many researchers who believe it's currently happening in the Proud Boys um, and even possibly within QAnon. 
So what can we what can we do to actually address this? Well, mapping out the networks that I've talked about throughout this talk helps solve for adversarial tactics like uh, the the creation of groups that actually don't have any substance to them, solely to throw off media coverage. Uh, and it can also work to address the root cause, the actual uh, sort of set of individuals who are creating these groups. So whereas designating a single group like Adamoffin Division can't get at the, the broader network, if you actually map out the network and try to uh, take action against that instead of the groups, you will have a much better time of, of preventing the groups from reforming and reorganizing like they always have been. Cooperation across social platforms is also extremely important for pushing back against accelerationist influence. These actors will often exploit um, gaps in social media monitoring to uh, actually propagandize and recruit new people. Um, they walk the lines of content moderation very effectively. And so cooperation ac across social platforms to take down um, these accelerationists and to use network analysis to do it is very important for uh, resisting accelerationist violence. And then finally, transnational connections can actually be used as leverage for domestic enforcement. So while taking action against domestic terrorists and domestic extremists is very difficult, especially, you know, especially in the United States, the fact that these are such transnational networks means that, uh, the, um, linkages between say like the Russian Imperial movement and the Adamoffin division can potentially be used to give more, more um, political leeway for undertaking action against these extremists and mitigating them. Uh, that use of transnational connections is also a good way of, of disrupting global networks rather than trying to play whack-a-mole with designating groups. So accelerationists in some, in conclusion, pose a very unique and very novel challenge for, for counterterrorism and counterextremism professionals across the world. However, there are some things that we know that we can do and, and some things that we have started working on already. So network, network mapping for one of them, uh, is, is probably the best, the single best thing that we can do. We absolutely need to move on from this, uh, uh, exclusive focus on individual groups and start looking at the broader transnational map of all of these different accelerationists, how they interact with each other and how they cooperate. And if we can get there, then it will be a very good start for actually mitigating this long-term. The core of the piece is, let's try and tell the story over 30 or 40 years of how this idea accelerationism, this tendency, came into being and how it's become influential. So the, the article kind of traces the origins of these ideas in Marx. Marx was very interested, as we all know, in the kind of dynamism of capitalism, as well as obviously criticising it. And that tendency on the left to kind of be fascinated by, as well as horrified by, capitalism I'd argue, in the piece has been around since Marx. And it kind of resurfaced most strongly in the 70s in a, in a few French writers, Guattari, Deleuze, Jean-François Lyotard, who wrote these kind of heretical books in the early 70s, essentially saying that people on the left should stop trying to, to resist capitalism, but they should in some way embrace it, embrace its kind of liberating sort of chaotic possibilities and, and thus find their way to a new kind of version of politics that perhaps might not even be on the left. 
So those ideas were around a bit in the early 70s. I write about them. But then the idea really takes hold at the University of Warwick in the mid-90s with people like the philosopher Nick Land, who explored it much more thoroughly um, and saw its manifestations in things like action films, drum and bass music, faster and faster music that was being enabled by technology. And I kind of tell the story in the article of the kind of almost the cult that grew up around Nick Land and at Warwick University, people studying these ideas, still not really calling themselves accelerationists, but celebrating kind of speed and technology and capitalism and, and being in love with the thing that also kind of horrified them. And then the article kind of moves forward to the noughties and, and even more recently where some people on the left begin to um, discover accelerationist ideas and people like Alex Williams and Nick Cernacek posit this idea that the left needs to think much harder about speed and technology and see the possibilities for liberation in things like automation and getting away from traditional capitalism into some kind of new automated capitalism. So the article kind of follows that story through the characters, through the development of those ideas and the way that these accelerationist ideas appear and then they kind of disappear and they resurface and why that is. And I guess it concludes by saying that there's a kind of tremendous danger in these ideas because they can lead you, from a Guardian point of view anyway, into quite dangerous territory of the far right, which is where Nick Land in some ways is now, but also that there's perhaps an unexplored potential there for a set of philosophical ideas that can speak to how we're actually living now. And quite early on in the research for the piece, I was talking to my girlfriend about it, and she said, oh, it's just a load of men um, drinking too much coffee and getting excited and writing. But actually, the more I researched it, I felt these ideas, even though I didn't like all of them, did resonate with how I was living and how people I knew were living. So it's not, I think, just a kind of esoteric macho kind of movement. It's something that has a purchase on how we're living, um, a very flawed purchase, but a purchase. So, Ben, Nina, I mean, I guess there's always a kind of ambivalence when a mainstream journalist takes something that you know about deeply as an academic and makes it more accessible to people. Do you think Andy did justice to the idea of accelerationism in his piece? And what would you have wanted to add to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the piece is a very fair piece, as Andy said, a kind of discussion that engages with the major players, both pro and anti um, on, and in between. So I think it kind of garners quite a few views, which I tried to do in the book. I'm kind of also interested in these other historical resonances of accelerationism as a strategy, that it doesn't just take place in Warwick and around the CCRU, that there are other kinds of situations that I talk about around Italian futurism, um, communist revolutions in the 20th century, uh, strategies around, as we just discussed, dance music, um, electronic music. So I'm not just interested in Nick Land and the CCRU, although they're a very direct articulation of the desire to accelerate and to punch through the self, really, to kind of dissolve the self into these fluxes and flows of capitalism. Would you agree with that, Nina, that, that in a sense we need to understand accelerationism as the latest or, or one variant of a kind of a recurring theme in ideas of modernity? There's often this kind of impulse for a kind of technophilia, you know, love of technology, a kind of, you know, fascination with kind of speeding things up, making things kind of more exciting. And I think we have to acknowledge there's something kind of very seductive about it. There's something seductive about post-humanism, transhumanism, thinking about how we can merge the human with the robot or with technology or, you know, these, these ideas of, you know, cybernetics, I guess, used to be the, the term people used. 
I think it's enormously seductive for people in Silicon Valley, for example, you know, and I think they're very influenced, obviously, by kind of accelerationist ideas, both on the left and on the right. We have to think carefully about these different political strands of accelerationism. It can veer to the right in people, figures like Nick Land, but there's also kind of interesting debates around left accelerationism, which are really trying to deal with these kind of serious questions about the future of work, for example, you know, what impact will automation have on employment, you know, and on these kind of big questions that do affect millions of people. Taking that point forward, Neil, that, that, where do you situate accelerationism in the kind of cosmology of political ideas? As you say, it's, it, it has this kind of promiscuous feel because it can be adopted by people with kind of alt-right views, with revolutionary left views. As you say, there's a kind of link to a kind of Silicon Valley view, which is which is expounded by kind of monopoly capitalists. So how much use is an idea which can be repurposed in so many ways? One way of looking at it is to think about the role of Marx and, and the fragment on the machines is famous fragment which can be read in multiple different ways so in a way you can trace it back to kind of a sort of marxist almost ambivalence really about what capitalism can do in terms of the kind of productivity and advances that it that it does bring about and the kind of destruction of tradition and all of those things which you know we can't really think about communism without thinking about what capitalism does as well historically so i think yeah we can think of it as coming from Marx, but just very, very different from different positions, really. And that, it seems to me, is one of the kind of interesting things if you're part of the kind of more mainstream left is that there is a kind of assumption that what the left is about is restraining capitalism, Ben. But this this is a different idea. And of course, it, it is an idea that reflects Marx, which is that it's only when you, when capitalism is, you know, fully developed that we can expect to move to a post-capitalist society. I mean, I would tend to argue that accelerationism is a strategy rather than something like an idea. You know, it's a it's a kind of mode of implementation by by its own definition to accelerate. And I guess a lot depends on then what <laughs> what is being proposed to be accelerated and by whom and, and to what end. But I definitely think, as Nina's saying, it speaks to these sort of contradictions of not just capitalism, but capitalist modernity, this kind of desire to enter a new age back to the kind of French Revolution um, I think it's Robespierre said, you know, there is a duty to accelerate the revolution. Yeah. Once you're in a kind of revolutionary moment, how do you keep that going? And then in the 19th century, the obsession with the idea of progress, as people have said, you know, virtually everyone in the 19th century inhabits uh, a thinking of progress. Um, and not just Marx, but also, as Nina can talk about as well, Nietzsche being a kind of key figure, you know, Nietzsche's idea of uh, European nihilism, the values are becoming kind of equalized and emptied. And he sees that as a process that also needs to be accelerated to kind of empty out values to kind of achieve something new. So there's this dual, at least, context of um, thinkers that produce these ideas that then get enacted you know, in, in different ways. And I think that's why it's so kind of promiscuous, because it's a strategy that can be taken up at various points and by the left. I know this is a tough question, but have a go at explaining to us the difference between left accelerationism and right accelerationism i think the simplest way to think about it is right accelerationists are accelerating capitalism so there's only one subject capitalism and they're pushing that further and further forward so this is the kind of technological neoliberal kind of model so you're accelerating that uh, by immersing yourself within and it. and it's assumed capitalism goes on forever yeah, I mean, in Nick Land, it goes into some kind of weird things. So it becomes a kind of monstrous, terrifying thing that will undo and destroy the earth in one sense. But that's kind of what they're almost welcoming. There's a kind of uh, enjoyment in the sort of nihilism of capital. The capital doesn't care about it. there's nothing you. after it, then, in other words. 
No, it's a kind of absolute horizon, except to almost to kind of realize it to its absolute extent, you know, to make it the purest kind of capitalism you can have. And then I think the left accelerationists, obviously, as we've been talking about, have kind of abandoned the term largely. I mean, I think their argument would be that it's important to engage with abstraction, modernity, technology, to repurpose those things for a left-wing project of hegemony. This is their kind of argument that they want to organize on a mass scale, so precisely rejecting kind of localist, organicist, what they call folk political solutions. So that would be the kind of core of their program. But I think what they share, in a sense, is this this vision of a kind of mastery or a desire to kind of master everything, you know, whether it's from one side or the other. What's coming up next is one or more segments that were originally only for members, but since this is a reposted episode, I've unlocked them for everyone. Enjoy, and if you like getting the extra content, think about becoming a member yourself. Almost as long as humanity has existed, we've been trying to figure out how it's all going to end. The Vikings, for instance, told stories about Ragnarok, the Twilight of the Gods, which was a series of events that included a great battle, the death of gods like Odin, and the Earth ultimately being flooded. The Aztecs, meanwhile, not only believed that the world would end, they believed that it already had ended on four previous occasions. First, it was destroyed by jaguars, then by a hurricane, then by a rain of fire, and then by a great flood. This flooding thing is a bit of a theme. Next, it was going to be destroyed in an earthquake. In fact, for the Aztecs, the end of the world was an event which had to be constantly warded off by human sacrifices to help keep the sun alive. But in our opinion, no one else has ever really quite done the end times quite like Christianity. The story of Revelation closes out the Bible, telling us in no uncertain terms that when the end does come, it'll make the final episode of Game of Thrones look like child's play, including lots of fire and dragons. Of course, at the end, Christ returns and redeems everything and there's no more suffering and death. But this brand new start is, of course, predicated on a bunch of destruction, proving that there's really no such thing as a free lunch. Throughout the past couple of centuries, religious leaders, fringe writers, charlatans, and cultists of various stripes have confidently predicted that all the world was gonna end, often on some definite date, and maybe even very soon. In the Middle Ages, some people got really fired up about the year 1000, with the millennium of Christ's birth kicking off a wave of apocalyptic mania that ended up being pretty anticlimactic. Over the course of the next millennium, plenty of the apocalyptic hungry faithful would wrongly believe that the end times had finally come. These included the Millerites, an American doomsday sect from the middle of the 19th century who prepared for the apocalypse not once, but three times before eventually giving up and deciding they'd have to commit to being alive. All the time, you might say, was Miller time. Members of the group later founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which now claims over 20 million members, 18 million of whom have knocked on your door. Meanwhile, over the course of the 20th century, the apocalypse got even weirder, with groups like Heaven's Gate preaching that the end of the world would be brought about through UFOs, which is definitely more creative than the terrifyingly plausible possibility that the Earth might be destroyed through man-made climate change. But whether or not you're in an actual cult, the sense that we're all about to die has steadily become more universal. But why have people always been so obsessed with the end of the world? 
One general fact about apocalypse narratives is that even though the end of humankind would be very bad, the apocalypse brings about an ultimately positive result. At the end of the Ragnarok story, two human survivors are supposed to repopulate the Earth after the Flood. After Christ's second coming, death no longer exists. After the UFOs come, the cult members will transcend their physical bodies and realize some sort of paradise in outer space. Plus, matching sneakers and tracksuits. Interestingly, one interpretation of the Revelation narrative is that it was actually a story told by persecuted members of the early Christian church to comfort themselves. One day, the old world would fall, and the emperor would stop feeding you to lions for sport. The end of the world is therefore supposed to redeem humankind, or at least the people who did or believed the right thing. And if the world around you sucks, it's very comforting to hope that a fresh start is right around the corner. This is especially the case for historically oppressed groups who were waiting for some kind of messiah to destroy this shitty world and create a new one grounded in some type of justice. Psychoanalysts like Freud have offered their own interpretations on this religious narrative, using the concept of the death drive to explain the fundamental human instinct to revert back towards an inorganic state. And in his work, Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud argues that the reason we have a civilization in the first place is to contain fundamental human aggressions caused by this death drive. On this reading, the desire for the end of life is just sort of wired into our unconscious. One good boy who read Freud was Frankfurt School critical theorist Theodore Adorno. Adorno lived through the rise of the Nazis, escaped the Holocaust by fleeing to America, which he hated, and witnessed the invention of the atom bomb. For him, all of this was a sign that life was so irredeemably bad that he named it the wrong life. According to Adorno, right living was no longer possible. For him, this extended from seriously awful things like death camps to pleasant things like jazz, all the way down to banal things like door handles and refrigerators. No, seriously, he wrote about this stuff. Adorno explored these thoughts in his book, Minima Moralia, a sort of philosophical document of his experiences in exile in America. To understand Minima Moralia, imagine a book written by Larry David, if he just read loads of Hegel instead of writing about soup Nazis and no fap contests. After approximately 200 or so pages detailing the many ways in which modern life both sucks and is completely hopeless, Adorno declares that actually we can do one good thing. In the book's final section, aptly titled Finale, he writes that the only philosophy which can be responsibly practiced in the face of despair is the attempt to contemplate all things as they would present themselves from the standpoint of redemption. We have to develop perspectives, Adorno said, that displace and estrange the world, reveal it to be with its rifts and crevices as indigent and distorted as it will appear one day in the messianic light. So in short, if everything is terrible, if all life is wrong and we can't live it rightly, there's still one thing we can do. Look forward to the rapture. Now, Adorno's messianism was merely theoretical. He just thought people should try to think about the world as if the Messiah was about to come down and finally set everything right. But it's certainly possible to see how this sort of thinking might translate into a yearning for the literal apocalypse. An alternative to Adorno's messianism can be found in the work of German philosopher Walter Benjamin. For Benjamin, an apocalyptic hell wasn't in the near future it was already here for the majority of the world's oppressed people. But unlike Adorno, he thought revolutionary politics was all about bringing about a messianic moment in which time would rupture. This would mean the end of the old world and the birth of something new. In this way, 
theological redemption becomes political redemption. Of course, this argument might sound slightly odd when applied to climate change or nuclear war. After all, how are those potentially apocalyptic events supposed to be redeeming? What sort of messianism is to be found in the world burning? And that's not surprising. Humans tend to like being right, to the point where when something huge is on the line, it easily devolves into moral absolutism. Like, say, the end of the world. Or, you know, whether pineapple belongs on pizza. The Doomer mindset makes its own sort of sense. The Doomer has abandoned any possibility of hope, and they may find that comforting. Maybe the world will end. Maybe the world will end soon, but at least if it does, the Doomer won't have been wrong. In their minds, the optimistic people, those who thought that maybe the end of the world might have been prevented, will not only have to endure the end of all things, they'll also have been very wrong. As the flaming comets fall to Earth, they'll know they've been played for chumps. But this idea that the world is already definitely ending, an idea shared by our friend Bo Burnham, you say the whole world's ending, already did, is explored by philosophers and anthropologists writing about the Anthropocene, i.e. the era of Earth that has been marked by humankind's domination of geology and ecology. Many of these theorists think the age of the Anthropocene, and thus humanity, is absolutely coming to an end and that it's all our fault. Scholar Gregory Marx, in an essay on the end of the world, quotes Deborah Danowski and Eduardo Viveros de Castro as saying that, it is certain that, although it began with us, it will end without us. The Anthropocene will only give way to a new geological epoch long after we have disappeared from the face of the earth. So if the end of the world ever comes, it will almost certainly be our fault. But that's weirdly good news. Because even if you don't have a lot of power, you do have some. It might not be obvious what we ought to do, but we do have at least some control over our lives, and thus, in some small way, over the fate of the species as a whole. This is what Jean-Paul Sartre meant when he said that existence precedes essence. While we might find ourselves restricted in many ways, there is something about humanity which makes us free to define ourselves in relation to those restrictions, to spot possibilities for action and choose to actualize them whenever we can. And what happens when we don't embrace that freedom? When we use external circumstances as an excuse for our inaction? That's what Sartre called bad faith. For him, our freedom means that we are without excuse. We are responsible for our own actions, for the good or bad we do within whatever conditions we happen to find ourselves. Doomerism, on the other hand, seeks to give everyone the ultimate excuse. There's no point doing anything since we're all going to die soon anyway. That said, even Sartre shifted his position in his later work, where he tried to fuse the existentialist emphasis on human freedom with a Marxist emphasis on social inequality. He eventually argued that even our freedom can be limited by material conditions, and that it is actually the work of collective human projects to affect any real change in the world. For Sartre, the looming end of the world would be just the type of threat that could unify disparate humans together into what he would call a group infusion. People who previously had nothing in common could be rallied and united in the mission of stopping the apocalypse. For him, this totalizing doom might be just the sort of thing that could lead to an uprising of real collective freedom. So it'd be like if there was, let's say, I don't know, a, uh, a looming ecological crisis on the horizon that was certain to radically alter all human life, and those humans could get together and use their collective power to stop that thing from happening. Or something like that. Does that sound crazy? Is that a crazy example? 
If the world is ending, we get together and we try to fix it? Is that stupid? Am I crazy? Are you crazy? Is anyone? I don't know. We've just heard clips today, starting with Fillion laying out some of the history and depths of depravity of accelerationism. Tech Against Terrorism explains the connection to neo-fascist ideology coming out of the end of World War II. White Hot Hate looked at one plot that highlighted the irrelevance of political alliances for people looking to bring down all of society. Angry Planet discussed groups like the Proud Boys and Patriot Front and the dangers they pose even if they're not committing terrorist attacks. The Rachel Maddow Show explained three plots to attack the electric grid in what appear to be efforts to sow chaos and weaken society to the point of collapse. The World Affairs Council of Monterey Bay featured a talk of breaking down some of the philosophical elements of accelerationism and why attention needs to be paid more to networks rather than to individual groups. And RSA podcast looked at left-wing accelerationism and the differences between left and right. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Wisecrack looking into why humans always seem to be obsessed with predicting, avoiding, or precipitating the end of the world. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, just a last couple of thoughts on accelerationists in particular and white supremacists more generally. Number one, we came across a comment during our research for the show that we found pretty amusing, but ended up not featuring because of the source that it came from wasn't quite up to our standards. But the comment on its own was pretty solid, so I'll just tell you what it was. A person was warning those pining for an ethno-state of their very own that they could live in, surrounded by people who look just like them, that although that might sound like a good idea to a white supremacist, those good feelings would only last for a few months at most, because after that, they would just find different things to be really annoyed at their neighbors for. There, there would never be an everlasting sense of bliss associated with getting their wish for a whites-only ethnostate, because humans always find something to complain about, and so going through all that effort of a race war and the logistics of a race-based deportation policy would really just be a giant waste of time and energy. So keep that in mind before you write your next manifesto. And number two is just a small point that I made on a recent bonus show, which was about a, a sort of revelation I had about the race war that white supremacists are attempting to start. What I realized is that race war is a misnomer. It won't be a race war. It'll be a racism war. It won't be white versus non-white people fighting in this war. It'll be between white racist people and everyone else, which is a huge difference numerically compared to if the warring factions really were going to be divided by race, because there are a whole lot of non-racist white people who would not get down with fighting with the white people for uh, the sake of the white race. It's just not going to happen. So to all of you white supremacists who I'm sure are listening to this podcast, 
that's just some helpful advice for you that doesn't have anything to do with us suggesting that you need to give up your hateful ideology. That's a separate conversation. Just know that the end games of your race hatred are very unlikely to play out as you imagine. So you'd really be better off focusing your efforts elsewhere. I'm just here to help. As always, keep the comments coming in, and remember that our old number now does new tricks. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can send us a text, find us on WhatsApp, or on the Signal Messaging app, all with the same number, 202-999-3991, or keep it seriously old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or participating and gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. As I said during the show, now is a particularly important time for you to sign up if you've been considering it at all, so please think about it. And membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.